On the 5th of November, 1946, exactly 70 years ago, six men walked into a field in North County Dublin. They dug a hole and planted a pole. It marked a promise to bring electricity to every home in Ireland. This was a time when Eamon de Valera was our Taoiseach and Europe was rebuilding after World War II. But almost two million people in rural Ireland still had no electricity. This poll was going to change all that. When the Electricity Supply Board, or the ESB as we now know it, was founded in 1927, cities and major towns got power. But it took decades for rural Ireland to light up. In 1946, one of the most important pieces of our national planning was put underway when work was begun on rural electrification. In 1946, a plan was unveiled to connect 400,000 homes. It was called the Rural Electrification Scheme, and the pole in this particular field is where it all started. Kilsalahan was the first area to be connected, and I think the parochial house maybe got um, electricity before McCullough's pub. I'm with Brendan Delaney, heritage manager with the ESB. He's found the original pole lying forgotten in the long grass. So it's the equivalent to an art collector coming across a painting by a famous artist. Rural Ireland in the 1940s was a dimly lit world of emigration and farming. So these poles signalled the arrival of a whole new world. The big thing from the beginning was that they weren't just selling appliances, they were selling a lifestyle. They were selling the future, really. It was the biggest project in the history of the state. It took three decades, over one million poles and 75,000 miles of cable. They called it the Quiet Revolution and it took the brains and brawn of thousands of men to build the network. But electricity changed the lives of women in rural Ireland forever. Women's work was very, very hard uh, in those days. Like Electricity really was the women's liberation movement. The Irish government needed electricity to drive the economy, but to support the miles of cable, the ESB needed a forest of poles. In Dublin, Miranda Conroy's father, Peter, was in charge of shipping the poles in. My mother used to hold dinner parties for all these um, captains. And when I was a child, I would hear, oh, you know, Captain Neville Lennon is coming for dinner with his wife. Or with somebody else, like a Captain Ingertilla. But these were really exotic names. And, and our house then, I, I would be told, OK, early bed, uh, the Finns are coming. You know, over oh, the Finns now, would that be John Finn from such and such? And mm -hmm. No, this is a Finnish sea captain. He's bringing poles for the ESB, for the Rural Electrification Scheme. Landing the poles in remote harbours, like the Inishowen Peninsula in Donegal, was a huge challenge. They, got, they, they decided on three small, very small, isolated piers to which, into which they would bring modest numbers of poles. Des Doherty worked with the ESB for 40 years. Indeed, and, and they, they quote in Ramelton, 500 people turned up, and in Malinhead, uh, the locals still talk about uh, the uh, 
fascination people had there and the young people like Philip Glacken and uh, and Mary Mary McLaughlin uh, they, they spent uh, all of the day that the steamers arrived down looking with awe on the deliveries the uses of the slings uh, and cranes that were on the boat uh, to, to deliver to the nose of the pier. Before the poles were planted the country was divided into 792 districts then they were canvassed for customers. Initially, the ESB chose to connect one part of every county. Priority was given to areas that would bring the most revenue. Then it was up to surveyors like Noel Mulcahy in North Kerry to cut the lines into the landscape. What you had at first the time, you had two fellows working for you, cutting holes in the hedges so you could see through with the theodolite and um, with slashers. You know, you, you had to lay out a backbone line, it's supposed to be dead straight and you were working off maps and you, you were marking off uh, about 80, 80 metres uh, uh, from pole to pole. And uh, sometimes the maps weren't, weren't accurate. And, and on the other occasion, I'd be looking through at the other lake and I'd see a bloody house in, in front. I said, geez, that's not supposed to be there at all. What are we going to do now? And they got into me that if you had to put an angle, the angles cost money, you know, and so on. So I remember going to bed at night time, you know, perspiring, about making a bad job of this because I wasn't able to get the thing dead straight, you know. You'd think only a mountain or a house could change the course of an electricity line, but there were other barriers as awkward to get around. Dubliner Tony Suttle remembers linesmen being diverted by superstition. A linesman, uh, at the instructions of the engineer, would go to plant a pole in a particular spot in the field to be told by the owner of the land that no, absolutely no way uh, could a pole be put there. That was a fairy wrath or a fairy bush. One of my ancestors came out 180 down the fields. He had a cow here. He seen a piper playing and a whole lot of men dancing around that tree. No, because they say if you stood and went back to them, you'd never get away. They put a spell on you. And as often as not, my father said, uh, the pole would have to be moved slightly to one side or the other to facilitate this uh, strong, strong belief. Across the country, gangs of wiremen were climbing poles and stringing cable. From Enniscrone to Enniscorthy, work was underway. In Coulee, County Cork, the work inspired this ballad. It's sung by Danny Sullivan. Oh, Johnny dear, and did you hear what all the neighbours say? That the ESP with electricity have landed in Kule To draw that wire through bag and wire, it was a holy show. Oh, Johnny dear, if we had him here some 50 years ago. Going to work uh, like the truck had a canvas uh, for the man at the back, you know. This is Daniel Duffy. He's 83 and from Letterkenny. He worked with a pole gang in Rathmullen in Donegal. That was a Ford truck, and halfway of that truck, like this hood was on it, you know. But uh, the front of it was open because it had to be open for that's where you push the poles through, you know. It used to be beers going the cold morning in the back of that truck, can't they? You had to dig one hole, six foot six, each day and four foot of another hole, Doug. That was one day. 
and then the pole had a gun, like you understand, like you know. And they'd be allocated the pick and the shovel and the crowbar, and uh, and they'd generally cycled out to those holes and they'd, they'd hide the tools in the ditch and resume the next morning, you know. Joe Sullivan was with a gang in Carlo. It was a 16-year job to link the county from Tin Ryland to Castle Warren. But the guys had to come along and manually lift the end of that pole, get their shoulder underneath it, it would be dirty and with bloody fresh creosote and everything, and a couple of them would, would get the first bit up on the, on, the, on, the, on the trestle at the end of the truck. And then three or four of them would just, as I say, horse it up on the truck manually, like, you know? Pull up two more! Pull up two more! OK, make it off! OK, make it off! And if you weren't able to do that, I remember there were a four men from Rafoak, you know? And this man, I was only able to do one hole, you know? And he's just them boys, just... If you can eh, speed you up a bit with them holes, I'll need it. We were so far on, you see. This is when I start. We were so far on digging the holes, you see, and the poles up. I'll need a motorbike to come back to you. <laughs> Charlie Logan said that. <laughs> Down the bottom end of the country, in Ross Carvery, in County Cork, there was a story about a pony. This is told by Chris O'Neill, and it's become the stuff of legend. The, the, uh, we'd get a load of poles. We'd have to order these poles from the pole field. And when he'd bring the pole onto the location where the hole's been down, he'd leave it back about 10 feet. And then he'd, he'd, he went too near the hole and the pony slipped into the hole. And Paddy Crosby used to have a programme on on the Sunday night with kids. And one question he used to ask them was, can you tell me of a funny incident? And this young lad, anyway, said he was on his way home from school one day and he just saw this horse fall into a hole. And the young lad said, and they shot the horse. But Paddy Crosby asked the question then, he said, they shot the horse in the hole. And the young lad said, oh, no, Sorry, he says they shot the horse in the head. In 1948, just 2,000 premises had electricity. Some homes were dead against signing. But slowly, parishes were lighting up. We are here tonight celebrating a most important occasion. Bansha in Tipperary was one of the first. Electrification for the parish of Bansha. Tonight, we intend to switch on the lights for this village. The ceremony attracted dignitaries and even Radio Erin. Local priest Canon Hayes threw the switch to wild celebrations. It was a scene that would play out all over the country. And here goes, in the name of God. Before long, the connection rate reached 11,000. And by the early 50s, this had surged to 60,000. Outside influences started leaking into popular culture. And in the wet ditches of North Kerry and Limerick, Noel Mulcahy was singing a song of the day. And what we, whenever it rained, we dove into a ditch and, and we sang. An old cowboy went riding out one dark and windy day. 
It wasn't just cowboy songs that were rising from the ditches, sometimes it was operatic arias. We do a. What is it? This would be coming out at the hedge, you know. <laughs> so, so these were the kind of mad things that went on. Typically, poll men like Tim Slevin were well treated when they arrived in town. And how did people treat you then locally? Were they delighted to see you arriving or what? They were delighted. But it was also known to people. But there was godlike fear not delight witnessed the day his gang planted poles in Kilcar in Donegal. So we were having the tea this day. We were after putting up poles around and treated royally. We all thanked her. We were delighted with it. And uh, she says, you're very welcome. But she says, I'm sad. Because she says, do you know anything about said Column Kill's prophecy? No, says I, I do not. Well, it's in the prophecy that there be trees without branches coming near the end of the world. And we had put up a line of poles up by her house along. And she says, unfortunately, she says, the prophecy seems to be coming true. She says, there's the trees without branches. Tim's gang were keeping pace with the work and moving from town to town. But it wasn't just electrical connections that were made. Sometimes sparks flew when they moved into new digs. I think I was about 16 years of age, believe it or not. Tina Slevin remembers a raggle-taggle bunch arriving on her doorstep. And I said, no, we're not taking anyone else. That's it. No more. She didn't want to take me in. She was uh, the oldest of the family. And she didn't sort of said to the mother, I think, that, for God's sake, don't take in these fellas. The guy that was with him said, please, please take him in. She, she took in three or four. And I was one of them. Yeah, I was only in secondary school at the time and whatever. And I think she fell for me, but, you know, with two women in the house and uh, the, the young one and the old one, they pushed the thing. You know, she, uh, she said, these fellas had great jobs and great money because nobody had money and nobody was working. And we were like, oh, it started from there. And thank God it has lasted so long and we're still together. The rural dance hall was still the best chance of romance, however. And now, under glitter ball lights, the nights grew longer and the hemlines shorter. Women were wearing beehive hairstyles and men used brill cream to sculpt duck's arse quiffs. 
and they were extremely well uh, uh, got with the locals. Uh, they were all uh, young, um, physically fit young men. According to Des Doherty, being an ESB wireman had its own attractions. So uh, the, um, the dances uh, in the area took on a whole new meaning when you had these ESB guys. Many other locals had to resort to pretending they were ESB guys uh, in order to do as well as, as these strangers. The woman is still going strong. Patricia Doherty is her name, long married now, of course, to another ex-ESB man. So she was telling me that uh, about herself as a 16-year-old. As a uh, first, her first dance in Kinigo Hall, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, the guy was a great dancer, and uh, <clears throat> said he was um, he was working with ESP, bringing the light to the area, and she was delighted with that. That was a, an extra um, bonus for her. But her sister took her home anyhow, away from this guy, and uh, and the next Monday she was in Carndona at the at the fair, and uh, was amazed to find the same guy at the top of Bridge Street directing the traffic. He was a guard, not an ESB man, but he thought he would do better by claiming to be an ESB <laughs> rural pioneer. Orchestras were turned into show bands and performers like the Clipper Carlton began using amplifiers and guitars to cover jukebox hits. Well, you ask me if we're gonna be together and I tell you yes, we're gonna be In 1954, ESB celebrated their 100,000th rural customer, Ballinamult Creamery in County Waterford. Electricity was bringing changes and new people to town. Bridie O'Connor is 91. She's from Clonburn in Galway and will always remember one of these newcomers. Uh, we, we knew there were strangers in town kind of thing. And uh, one chap in particular talked to me more over the counter because they'd have a drink at the bar. And one day he called in and uh, said he'd like to take me out to the cinema. And from there, a romance sort of started. And he was a very nice bloke, very ordinary, bad, tall, not handsome but reliable, and he'd look, he'd say, you're down there, because he was quite tall. And I'd say, well, you'll have to come down. <laughs> Get on your knees. But we'd have a joke like that, but he, he, he was just a big, gentle giant. I wouldn't. I never looked, the, the looks didn't, the looks didn't strike me at all, because to me, he was, he was lovely. So he was a big, paddy-looking fellow. <laughs> no, it was... The ones that I met who were good-looking, like my husband, weren't, were cocky and weren't near as nice at all. And the time came, of course, when they had to move away and the job done. Uh, when one day this girl, two girls walked into a little shop I had started uh, to say that they were friendly with this chap, Bill Jones, and uh, that they had gone to football matches with him and this girl liked him very much. So, of course, that uh, got my rag out and I was very annoyed. <laughs> so, uh, but I did get on to him and I was quite annoyed that uh, 
I was faithful and I, I felt maybe. So he, he assured me and he came immediately to go all the way on the bus and tried very, very hard. But of course I was up in the air and <laughs> I, I, I wanted to call this thing off and did. Then I heard afterwards that he emigrated to America when the job was finished, but I knew that I liked him and I regretted it. So I think that's the story of my, my love story. And he wasn't a fella after girls. And I do feel that I was unfair to him and that I did the injustice. He knew that and he went to America, I suppose. She never laid eyes on Bill again. Most of Bridie's generation have a story to tell. Even our president, Michael D. Higgins. I was five in 1946 when uh, we went to um, Mark in Fergus County Clare. And I do remember uh, the priest on Sunday giving us, at the end of his sermon, saying, the electric is coming again. So he said, this is your last, your last chance and um, they'll be calling to your houses, so you had better say yes. I far remember the package was that you, you had to sign up to having at least one plug and two bulbs. So <clears throat> the work then of, of the installation went on itself and... Uh, anyone who, who was a qualified electrician and those who were not indeed were involved as well uh, began putting in cigarette heart lamps all over rural Ireland. Before electricity, homes were lit by oil lamps, water was drawn from wells and cooking was done on fires and ranges. Now the future was offering bulbs, pumps and cookers. In the Senate in 1945, Sean Lamass, who was then the Minister for Industry and Commerce, said he hoped for a day when a marriage proposal would rest on the number of electrical appliances and not the number of cows a farmer could provide. Maria McHale explains. The big thing from the beginning was that they weren't just selling appliances, they were selling a lifestyle. They were selling the future, really. Um, they really had a grand vision of Ireland and they really believed in rural electrification as a way of, I suppose, stemming the flight from the land, you know, countering emigration, things like that. Um, and they invested very heavily in sales techniques. When the digging and the pole planting was done, the ESB sent out its sales teams. And instructors known as demonstrators made home visits. I mean, the big thing really was to get people to put plugs into the house um, and not just the light, because... The thing with the rural electrification scheme was they wanted to create the demand within consumers. They wanted to make the load economically viable. They talk about going in and trying to talk to the woman in the house on her own first so that they'd be able to advise the appliances to go in and then going around and trying to persuade the farmer then after that. And there's a few references and of course some of the, the research I came across to that women would have liked to buy more things but they didn't have control of the purse strings. Dello Collier was a demonstrator. Every, every appliance that was sold, people were offered uh, the service of a demonstrator to call to them. And so we would go out to the house and meet the client and make sure that they were quite happy with the way it was installed and the way it was working. And if they had any queries or questions, we would deal with them. It was a very glamorous position. 
People don't realise it. It was being a demonstrator for the ESB was in its day even more glamorous than being an Aer Lingus hostess. Uh, the horror that you hoped wouldn't happen was that somebody would have difficulty making brown bread in an electric cooker, even in the city, and uh, that it wouldn't be exactly the way it was when they had it in the range and so forth. And you might have to go out and actually bake brown bread in their cooker and make sure that it did come out the way they wanted it. You know, it was one of the things that I used to dread anyway, having to go out baking brown bread in a house. And sometimes people would be a little bit annoyed when you succeeded because... You had somehow proved them wrong, so you had to be kind of a bit diplomatic at how you got your way out of that one. And then there was the development of the spin dryer. Now that, that era was great fun because they were like Sputniks. They were going at 3,000 revs per minute. So, But the, the, the Sputnik was a little round tub. Uh, we used to call them Sputniks when they were, you could buy an individual spin dryer or you could buy a twin, a twin tub. These dryers were launched the same time as the Sputnik satellite. It was 1957. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. 500 miles up, the artificial moon is boosted to a speed counterbalancing the pull of gravity and released. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age. The ESB were pushing for 200,000 connections. There were strange devices spinning in space and out-of-control tumble dryers. Sputnik and the Cold War coincided with electricity. I was born during rural electrification and remember the leaflets telling everyone what to do in the case of nuclear fallout. I can still see that leaflet hanging there beside the fuse board when we knelt for the rosary and prayed for the conversion of Russia. And there was a lot of fear around electricity at the time. And some of the women that I interviewed, they talked about, you know, they had to stand on a rubber mat and they were nervous of the electricity. Um, stand on a rubber mat if you're cooking or if you're near any electrical appliances. You know, to, people didn't understand it. So really the iron, the kettle, the radio, they were safe ways of introducing electricity into the home. But a lot of that relates back to, I mean, from what I could see, an unwavering belief that electrification was vital you know, for the country, for the well-being, to try and progress Ireland into a modern economy. In a hall in Clock Jordan, Tipperary, locals are sharing stories about rural electrification. One woman remembers how electricity changed the farming workday. My father, when I was a little girl, my memory was in the summertime, the, all the jobs wouldn't be finished in the yard, the milking, everything, at quarter to seven. And my father would come in for that 15 minutes to hear the archers. Now, I mean, totally different culture yet. It was farming community, rural England, and the problems they had and the things that they reenacted were the same. And he, my, mother, my mother would want to get the work finished, but she would listen to the archers, particularly in the wintertime. They'd be in by quarter to seven. It wasn't that long since the War of Independence, but this British soap was unmissable. Electricity extended the day and lightened the load, and like the archers, the ESB were teaching new farm practices. The infrared lamp has solved the old problem of providing warmth at a reasonable cost for the rearing and fattening of pigs. In poultry farming too, ideal conditions for hatching and rearing can be created at the turn of a switch. From sacred heart lamps to infrared lamps, 
new lights were shining across the land. I remember um, at home, we used to have sows and bonnets. Yeah. And the mortality rate just be terrible with bonnets because the die with cold, no matter what straw or bedding, or no matter how you try to keep them warm, uh, frost would come and they'd get frostbitten and die. I remember Robbie Guest, God rest him, coming to our place, Robbie down from Cortavella. He brought the wires and we put them on top of the pole into the shed. But infrared lights over the bonnets, it saved oh, yeah. an awful lot of bonnets yeah, yeah. because the heat and the light was hugely important. Yeah. It made an enormous difference to us, you know. At that time, the, the old chicks would be sent on the bus uh, uh, all around the country and so forth, and people hatching and people doing things like uh, uh, hatcheries and so forth. Uh, they used electricity very early on, I think, in relation to, But in relation to its widespread usage, I think it was quite slow in the farmyards. But then, of course, in the farmyards, it eliminated and would go on to eliminate so much drudgery. By 1960, more than a quarter of a million new connections had been made. Now electricity was powering television sets in Irish sitting rooms. I remember a story about two brothers and a sister. And when RTE started, that's 62, um, Charles Mitchell would have been one of the newsreaders. And these two people, the two men worked in the farm and the sister looked after the house. But when it came to the nine o'clock news, uh, the boys would shave, change the clothes, have a good wash, she'd put on her good clothes. The television wouldn't be turned on until they were ready, because as far as they were concerned, Charles Mitchell could see them. <laughs> TV had arrived, but the dance hall had become an even bigger part of Irish life. Her hair is soft and her eyes are old. In 1962, Elvis scored the first official Irish number one hit, and counties Cavan and Kilkenny were connected up. In 1963, the counties of Roscommon and Sligo were completed. In the Dáil, Charles J. Hawhey proposed the abolition of the death penalty. But the biggest news story was abroad. And so on this hillside, on this cemetery in Arlington, this final chapter and the earthly story of John Fitzgerald Kennedy is being told. In two decades, electricity had transformed the nation. Priests were still preaching the benefits of electricity from the pulpit, but they were feeling the heat from Peter Conroy's back garden. And a, a Finnish sauna arrived on one of the ships. So Peter Conroy is having a sauna erected in Ghost Town. So the, these... Ship's captains were coming out to make sure everything was done properly. and So anyway, the sauna goes up, it's amazing, but the biggest interest was expressed by the neighbours because nobody knew what a sauna was. And my parents received a visit from the local priest one day to say that some neighbours were very concerned that there was a wooden house in their back garden and an elderly couple and a small child were cavorting. My father brought, brought the priest in, he said, come and have a look and... This is it, and explained it, and it went away. But there was always a kind of a nudity in Ireland, not a runner. It was exquisite. By 1965, more than 80% of rural Ireland had electricity. 
By 1969, in excess of 300,000 new rural premises had been connected. At the same time in America, NASA was getting ready to send a man to the moon. But remote areas of Ireland were still without electricity. The Black Valley in Kerry, in the shadow of the McGillicuddy Reeks, was amongst them. Brendan Delaney, the man who found that first pole in Kilsallahan, remembers the finish. The terrain was particularly uh, rocky and marshy in various places, but it was a logistics effort. Now, there was also the whole question in the Black Valley of where the network would be sited. So 400 poles were used to supply um, 39 customers, but ESB put a huge amount of effort and thought into where those poles were placed. In 1977, the Black Valley was the last outpost, and with good reason. And it was a difficult place to put poles into that were... It was boggy and that type of thing. Michael Daly was the engineer in charge of the work. This was an, an area of natural beauty and people were concerned about poles, you know. I think I told you one time about uh, a person who said to me, I was down in the Black Valley on Sunday and I had a good look at it because it would be the last time he could see it without poles. And I said to him, Jim, I said, Jim, this is the M, <laughs> the poles are up. <laughs> but we had random... We, there had been talk of them going in front of the... Well, the, there, was a, there, was a, there was a lake, there was a road down in front of a nice lake. And anyway we diverted the poles behind the lake. And uh, they, they fitted into the background fairly well now, in fairness to the USB. And uh, they, they, he, he didn't even see them, the, the same person. In ESB, Black Valley was seen um, as maybe a formal end to rural electrification. That final pole in the Black Valley was the full stop on more than 30 years of work. It ended as it started, a simple pole planted in a remote location. According to ESB director Marguerite Sayers, it was a feat of engineering. They left a real quality legacy, you know. If you, if you stand and you look at any, what they call a straight of electricity poles, you know, um, and you, you, you look at a line and you look at it head on, you'll only be able to see the first one. The rest of them will disappear behind it because without the help of mechanisation, they plumb them absolutely straight. Um, and I suppose, you know, that, that left a pride in, in the work and, and the quality, and, and hopefully we're continuing that today. The 75,000 miles of electrical cable that crisscrossed the nation helped power a social and cultural revolution. My mother had been a city woman, really, and therefore getting used to bending down with the tongs and noting the grain changing in the skin of her hands from the lifting of the pots and all of the rest of it. The electricity came too late to straighten the backs of too many women in Ireland. The economic benefits encourage migrants to come home. Later, the ESB played on the emotional impact of their return in a famous advert. In my 
And if there's a legacy to rural electrification, what occurred in Kilsallahan when that first pole was planted in 1946 is happening all over again, according to ESB Deputy CEO Jerry O'Sullivan. But you feel you're standing on the shoulders of your forefathers who put that ethos in place. And I suppose one example of that is our present project with CSIRO, where we are uh, bringing high-speed broadband to rural Ireland using that same electricity network we've just spoken about. And there's no doubt about it that high-speed broadband is like the light of the former years. In the year 2016, that future is something Phil Lynch couldn't have imagined as a boy. I very distinctly remember being primed, if that's the right word, to uh, do the switch on. And my father was out working and... um, wasn't aware that this had happened. I think it was later than usual, later than we expected even when he came in, so it had got darker than we expected. And with that, I was primed with the finger on the switch and on went the light and lit up the whole place. And as I said in the the last line of the poem, things were never the same. Changing light. It was nearly dark when he came in from the fields tired from the tiles of the day, ready to complain about the tilly lamp still unlit. Would he have to light it himself, he asked of no one in particular. In the shadow of an empty space beneath the stairs, I stood primed. The men with the metal boots, their belts heavy as a gunslinger's, had spent what seemed like years digging holes to plant the creosote forest that stretched across the countryside. With giant spools of wire unfurled, along roads and lanes and fields. I marvelled at how they scaled the heights of those black poles and worked at right angles to the ground without falling. Stuntmen all. In the countdown to dusk I waited, finger on the switch as if to take its pulse, or like some general in the Kremlin with his thumb on the red button waiting for the order to push. The predetermined signal came from my mother at the table, And with all the strength in my bony digit, I flicked the magic switch. Outside, the dusk turned instantly to dark. Inside, the light would never be the same.